struggle comes from. You might disagree with that, but you would agree it's struggle. And the Bible's very clear that the solution to the struggle is that you have an ability to stand. The question is, what are you standing on? In our worlds, you would see different interpretations of where the struggle is. Some people would see the struggle coming from different angles. Here's what the Bible says. The nature of the struggle in this world, verses 10 to 12. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Listen, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your boss isn't your problem. Your wife isn't your problem. The economy isn't your problem. Your past isn't even your problem. All these may be factors, but behind all these things, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Some interpret the struggle in life as some people don't believe in God. They say, well, there's no God. There's no devil. We're just animals. We're surviving. And the struggle is about us surviving and fighting and competing. Other people with a more religious background might say, well, the struggle is God. God's judging us. God's trying to teach us something. Other people would say, well, God's absent. God created a world and then he withdrew from that world and said, well, on yourself, mess up yourselves. And God is no longer involved with his creation. But that's not what the Bible's take is in this. Paul in, in Ephesians here reveals that behind the struggle is the devil and demons. So that behind the challenge in life, behind the struggle, there is manipulative authorities doing a work to undermine humanity. And that's the Bible's take on this. It's interesting, when we talk about the devil and demons, the jury's out on those matters as far as the world is concerned. Some uh, research was carried out and it found out that nearly two out of every three adults, that's 62%, agreed that Satan was not a living being but rather just a symbol of evil. Surprisingly, 52% of Christians surveyed denied Satan's existence. And nearly three quarters of Catholics say that the devil is non-existent, that's 72%. Women are more likely to reject Satan's existence than men. 64% of women say there is no devil. 59% of men say there is no devil. Nothing's really changed since Eve, huh? In Edinburgh, we're in a very spiritual city. And I don't necessarily mean that in a healthy sense, but it is a spiritual city. My friend, Paul James Griffiths, who was uh, involved with witchcraft in the city in his past, he's now working with the Edinburgh City Mission. Not as a witch, but as, as a Christian now. Um, and he gave me some feedback on the spirituality of our city. And he said that there is a movement within the city to turn Edinburgh into the paranormal capital of Europe. There's usually about 12,000 people gather for the annual Belthane Fire Festival on Carlton Hill. Thousands of these will be students and tourists and, and uh, locals. But in among the 12,000, there will also be thousands who are practicing pagans, witches, and uh, occultists. Incidentally, Baal uh, comes from the gods that the, the, the idol just referred to in the Old Testament. Remember when uh, Elijah had the conquest on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of Baal? It's the, same, it's the same idolatrous backgrounds. In Edinburgh, there are 50 shops that are dedicated to the occult. It's amazing. C.S. Lewis talking about... Um, Satan and demons and our attitude towards them 
he gives us a word of caution. And he said this, and I think this is a really good point. He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors. They hail the materialists or the magician with the same delight. The Bible is a very clear take when it comes to Satan and demons. The Bible gives us a view of history that isn't just a physical view of history, but it kind of pulls back the curtains and shows us what was going on behind the scenes in a lot of the historic events we find recorded in the Bible. Going back to prior to the creation of man, there was an event way back that the Bible refers to where in heaven there was a, a battle took place and Satan fell. The, in Ezekiel it alludes to this that Satan was uh, one of the leading angels, a, a chief cherub uh, who was so full of himself and his beauty that he desired the place of God. And in his pride, Satan caused there to be a mutiny in heaven and a number of angels went along with him in this deception. There was a battle and he was cast out of heaven. It's also referred to in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. It says there was a war in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven and the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He is hurled to the earth and his angels with him. The accuser of the brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So the struggle moved to planet earth. Then we find the account in Genesis where God's created mankind's created us in his image, unlike the animal kingdom. Satan turns his attentions to us. And he comes and he brings temptation to mankind. And way back, recorded in Genesis 3, we find Adam and Eve sins. They yielded to the temptation and another fall took place and it was the fall of man. Where man fell away from God. Where sin came into the pure, beautiful, sinless world. And mankind lost their place of relationship with God. Sin became a barrier separating us. Satan did this and it seemed like all was lost. But way back in Genesis 3, God makes a declaration that brings us hope. It's become known as the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first announcement of the gospel. Where God turns to Satan just after he caused the temptation to Eve. And he turns to Satan in Genesis 3.15 and says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seeds and hers and he will crush your heads and you will strike his heel here God's way back at the beginning of creation declares that there will become a moment where someone will be born of a woman who will crush your head Satan that you will be defeated on earth just as you were defeated in heaven 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ was born Jesus God in the flesh Emmanuel God with us He was born. He came as the rescuer. He came as the one to bring success, to bring deliverance to people, to set us free from Satan's power. Jesus came and the Bible says that he was born of a virgin and he lived throughout his life sin free. He was tempted. It says in Hebrews 4, 15, that one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet was without sin. 
all the temptations that you and I face combines Jesus faced singularly and he overcame he refused to yield to the temptation so he was sinless and there he he died on the cross it looked in that moment as if Satan had the upper hands Satan had hatched the plot he'd stirred up Judas because of his love of money he stirred up the chief priests because of their envy because of Jesus getting all the attention and Satan hatched the plot and he thought he had the upper hands He thought he was having the victory over Jesus. It looked like Jesus was losing. But Satan was merely striking Jesus in the heel. What Jesus was doing was crushing him in the head as God had predicted those years before. Jesus Christ came and as he died on the cross, he was defeating Satan. As he died, he, the sinless one, took our sin upon himself. He paid the price, took our sin, conquered sin so that you could be forgiven. As he died on the cross, he conquered death because he died in our place. And then he rose again, conquering death, offering you eternal life. And he conquered Satan because he removed Satan's legal right of authority over you by removing the sin. It says in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled out the written codes with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus, when he came and he died on that cross and he rose again, he defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. All three of your greatest enemies. That was Jesus' first coming. One day Jesus will return again. While he defeated Satan, sin and death in his first coming. And through him, you too can defeat Satan, sin and death. In his second coming, he will eradicate Satan, sin and death. When Jesus returns, there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. He will wipe every tear from the eye. And he will cast Satan, according to Revelation, into the lake of fire. Now we live in the middle. We live between the first coming and the second coming. And in this era in which we live, it's summed up by struggle. And we must learn to stand. We have an enemy against whom we struggle. In this struggle, you need to know your enemy because your enemy knows you. When Paul describes the enemy in here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses, verse 11, it says, Let's put on the full armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes in the Greek language is methodia, which means methods, cunning arts, deceit, craft, and trickery. Satan is crafty. He has schemes. He has methods. You see, if you were the devil and you were going to tempt you, you would probably pick your areas of most vulnerability. And you would stack up all the temptations on those areas to take you out. Now you have to rest assured that Satan has methods designed for you. He has methods designed for you that will target your vulnerabilities. He's methods designed for governments, for organizations, for families, for communities, for nations. He has many methods and many schemes that he has designed, devised to take people down and take them out. So we need to be aware of that and we need to learn to stand. How do you overcome the devil? Paul gives us the keys. He starts by saying, stand in his God's strength. Verse 13. It says, finally be strong in the Lord 
and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. Say stand. Stand your ground, and after done everything, to stand. How do you fight the devil mainly? Okay, there are many ways we see in the Bible and around us that people fight the devil. For example, Jesus, as he was going through his earthly ministry, he would come across someone who was demon-possessed, and he would deliver the demon-possessed person from the demons, and they would be free. And we saw some remarkable turnarounds. We've seen this in our services as well. We've prayed for people who have been demon-possessed or oppressed, and their lives are being crippled because of demonic oppression, and we've seen God, through prayer, deliver them. It's very powerful. We also see in the Bible the authority that we have in prayer. Here's another way we can uh, defeat Satan over someone's life. We can pray for them. We can get involved with prayer ministry, binding, loosing, taking authority in the heavenly realms. Believers have the authority to do these things. Another effective way of dealing with Satan are crucifixes and garlic. <laughs> and just joking. There was two nuns driving along one day. And as they were driving along, a vampire jumps out and lands on the windscreen. And one nun turns to the other and says, what are we going to do? And the other nun says, show them your cross. So the lady leaned out the window and said, you're a very naughty vampire. <laughs> now having said that exorcism is, is a way of dealing with Satan, and having said that binding and loosing is a way of dealing with Satan, I have to say that that's not, that's not the norm. That's the exception. Now we, we don't, see, we, the way we deal with Satan in your life isn't, I have 200 exorcisms, right? That'll deal with it. That's not, that's not necessary. But what is necessary is what Paul is talking about here. That God is calling us to live a life of standing on certain truths, believing certain things. The normal Christian life is resistant in itself if it's lived right to Satan. If you think back in the book of Acts to when Paul went to the church at Ephesus, well, he went to, when he, before there was ever a church there, he started telling people in Ephesus, in that great city, about Jesus. Thousands of people came to Christ. There were many miracles you can read about in the book of Acts. As that was happening, many of the people who were involved with occultic things, uh, occult and uh, demon worship and idolatry and all sorts of stuff that they were involved with, they repented, they renounced those things. In fact, if you read in the, the history in Acts, you find that they, they had a huge big burning ceremony where they burned their magic books. And they came to, the, if, if you added up the value of those books, it came to vast amounts of money. It was a huge amount of occult involvement these people had. So they had already renounced that. So Paul wasn't having to write to them about that, like having to backtrack and deal with that again. They've dealt with it. So he's now talking to them. Now you've dealt with the biggies. Now you need to move on and build your life in a certain way and take certain stances. And by doing that, your life becomes resistant to Satan. Now, before we go there, let me just say this to you. So some of you may already not have dealt with the stuff. Some of you are involved with uh, tarot cards. Some of you are involved with Ouija boards. Some of you are involved with mediums or even extra large. Uh, Some of you got involved with seances, where you're calling up the dead, although it's not the dead, it's a demon. Uh, Some of you are visiting... Uh, fortune tellers. Uh, some of you have got the horrible scopes. All sorts of stuff going down in many of your lives that you haven't yet dealt with. Certain Eastern religions and philosophies come with very demonic roots. Not all. Like some people get really paranoid about it, so you can't do karate, it's from the devil. No, it's not. Right? Uh, 
but certainly some Eastern philosophies have their roots in that. So you've got to be alert to that and aware of that. But what you do is you've got to renounce that stuff. You've got to have a burning ceremony. You've got to ditch the stuff in your life that you know is unhealthy. Because I know some of you here have opened up your life. You've been in a seance or you've done the Ouija boards. And from that point onwards, you've had horrendous nightmares. Your, your life is tormented. Even physical stuff happening around your house. I know it because I work with you all. It's, it's a horrendous thing when you open up the door spiritually to dark things. It does affect people's lives. For some of you, it may just be kind of sounds like fantasy what I'm talking about. Well, you need to ask some of the other folks here and see the reality and the danger and the fears involved with that. So you need to thoroughly close the door to those things by renouncing it, if necessary, getting people to pray for you. And if, if you want at the end of the service, we can pray for you if you're struggling with any of these things. But having moved on from that, assuming you've repented, assuming you've dealt with the stuff, here's how you now build. Here's now how now you you fight in this struggle. Here's how, how you take the stand. Paul's talking about now the normal Christian life that resists Satan looks like this. Stand. That's his advice. Stand. In fact, he uses the word four times. Stand. 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 That's how you overcome Satan. Stand. Here's a quick film clip from the film 300, which depicts 300 Greeks in a battle where they're fighting against one million Persians. And they take their stands against the onslaught of this vast army. Here's the clip. Earthquake. No, Captain. Battle formations. You can do! 
enjoy that, children. Paul says, stand. The Greek word for stand that Paul uses, he reinforces it four times. Stand, brace yourself, is the Greek word hestimai, which means to literally support oneself on the feet, on the feet in an erect position. It means to take up or maintain a specific position or posture. It, it, it describes, it's in the context, it conveys the idea of digging in. It's interesting, the next slide we show the Roman soldiers' shoes. They wore specific sandals called calgia, which were th- uh, thickly studded sandals with hobnails in the bottom of them. And the studs were to dig in and to stand in the face of battle. Their f- shoes were des- designed to, to be able to hold the ground as, as the people came on with the onslaught. And here Paul says, the way you conquer, the way you fight spiritually, is you've got to learn to stand. You see, perseverance is your key. I remember as a kid, I got into a fight in, uh, in the local football field. The guy I was fighting was, was much smaller than me, by loss, right? Now, okay, I wasn't a Christian then. Point being that now I'm a Christian, I win my fights. I lost the fight, and I thought, I'm going to take this guy easy. And we got into this kind of tussle. I was, I was throwing everything I could at him, but he just kept bouncing back. He's a resilient little guy. And I, th- I thought I was, because I'm bigger and stronger, I thought I could take him out. But he just, and I didn't know he'd been trained as a boxer. So he had this resilience and he just kept coming back and he just kept bouncing back. Although I was bigger and stronger, because he persevered, I ended up getting fatigued and he decked me. That was it. Perseverance. Sometimes the battle is won because we persevere. Casey Treat uh, leads a large church in Seattle. He's over 10,000 members now and they started 30 years ago with 30 people. It's grown very big Christian faith center. Now, he was at, he's seen many, many challenges, many tough times, many struggles he's had. And someone once asked him, Casey, how is it you've gone from a church of 30 people to over 10,000 people, and you've gone through so many struggles and challenges? And Casey Treat says, we've just learned to outlast the devil. His point being that the devil keeps coming at him, the devil keeps challenging. So many things have come to try and undermine and to ruin, to stop the growth but Casey's attitude has been just to stand, to knuckle in. How do you stand? Is it you, see you grit your teeth? Is it you say, I'm not going to quit. I don't care what the devil throws me, I'm not going to quit. Is it your kind of positive mental attitude? Is it your sheer determination? No. The Bible says we're standing in his strength. The Bible describes us as having to put on the armor of God. This is the armor of God. It's not the armor of Pete. It's not the armor of I make it happen. It's the armor of God's. It says in uh, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's not saying just have enough bravado and kind of display of strength and you'll make it through. No, no, no. It's saying be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's God's strength. It's God's equipping. It's God's empowering. I often hear Christians talk with a lot of bravado about the devil. And it's like charismatic kids playing with silly toys. They don't know what they're playing with. They're playing with fire. You hear Christians saying, oh, we'll conquer the devil and kind of talking with bravado. But the Bible warns us against that. We must have not a, not a worshipful respect, but a, a certain level of respect for Satan and his angelic uh, abilities. That as an as a, in creation order, an angelic being is more powerful than a human being. However, in God, under Christ, we have more authority and by the Holy Spirit, we have more power. But in, our, in ourselves, we have nothing. So it's not bravado, it's not a, come on, we'll bring, bring it on, devil. It's not like that. 
We must have uh, sobriety when it comes to these things. It's interesting, going back to Acts 19 again in Ephesus, when this great revival was taking place, when Paul was there first, uh, we see Paul performing great miracles with God's power and some demon-possessed people being freed. And Paul was praying over people in the name of Jesus and demons were fleeing. Now, there were seven Jewish exorcists who were watching Paul doing this and they figure, that looks good. We're going to do that. So they get around a demon-possessed guy and they say, we command you, demon, to come out of you uh, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And then it says, and listen to this interesting verse, Acts 19, 15 to 16, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who the heck are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped at them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house bleeding and naked. Wow, that's one of the videotapes you want to see when you get to heaven. I mean, what impresses me about this guy, he, first of all, he took out seven guys. And secondly, he managed to strip them in the middle of beating them up. I mean, how'd you do that? Oh, how did you get... Oh, right. And they ran out naked and beaten up, seven of them. That's quite a lot of skill. Um, I find it funny anyway. <laughs> but here they were with bravado in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. But they had no authority. You see, you can't stand in your own strength and stand. You're standing in the strength of his might. You're standing in God's. It's the armor of God's. It's the empowering of God that enables you to take grounds. Uh, the National Geographic magazine did an article on the Alaskan bull moose. And they looked at their, uh, their behavior and their seasonal behavior. And they talked about how in, in autumn, that's when the rutting season is and the, the males do, uh, fight for dominance. And typically the males that have got enough bulk and the, the antlers are strong and healthy. They're the ones that are able to gain dominance. But the weaker animals, or the animals whose antlers are weak, and sometimes they snap off in the middle of the battles. As soon as the antlers are gone, they've got no hope. And the, the National Geographic uh, talks about this, and, and they note that actually the battle isn't won in the autumn, but rather the battle is won in the summer. It's when the bull moose takes time to eat with nutrition and eats the right kind of foods and builds itself up and becomes fit and healthy and grows those strong antlers. It's in the summertime as the bull moose is taking in and getting all the nutrients it needs in its body that it prepares itself for the battle. And you have to understand that our victory is in God. It's not in and of ourselves. That we must take time in God's presence. That You see, your battles will come but you need to make sure that you are in a place with God that you have a connection with God so that it's not in your own bravado or your own grit teeth or your own positivity that you're overcoming but it's in God's power you have a closeness with God you've taken the time with God and now you're ready for the battle Paul also goes on to say that we've got to stand for truth it says in verse 14 stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist Ephesians six fourteen. You see, I believe your convictions about truth will protect you. Notice when you look at the elements of the armor, and we'll go on to look at the rest of them in a moment, they're very truth-weighted. You see, a lot of Satan's attacks are very lie-weighted. You know, 
Seeing the glass floating around your house isn't a major attack of Satan. But having a lie sent your direction very subtly is an even more devastating attack. You know, seeing the, the dude with the weird hat and the broomstick, no fear. But you embrace a lie that Satan sows into your minds, fear. That can take you out. You, you have to understand the power that, that Satan operates in such an incredibly subtle way. We need to understand truth. Our armory, our weaponry is very truth-weighted. He says, stand firm with the belt of truth. You see, we said earlier that Satan has many schemes, many devices, many methods. The method that the belt of truth overcomes is the method of lying and deception. It says in Jesus speaking about the devil, in John eight forty four, Jesus says, talking about the devil, he said, he is a murderer from the beginning and he does not hold to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he speaks lie, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. Not only is he a liar, but he's also a deceiver. He's very subtle with his lying. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, if the devil turned up with the horns, the red cape, and the big tail, you think, you're the devil. You'd have nothing to do with him. But he doesn't come that way. He comes under the radar. He disguises himself as an angel of light. His lies are typically packaged as half-truths. That's what makes them more dangerous. So your best defense is truth. Stand firm with the belt of truth. You need to know truth. And then when you know truth and you're familiar with truth, you can spot the lie a mile off. When little girl Becky, uh, she's eight now, when she was just finishing breastfeeding and uh, moving on to solid foods, we would try and get as much good food in her as possible. The problem was she didn't like anything savory. She only liked pity for Lou or pureed apple. Um, so we had problems. So we'd try and get the kind of green pureed broccoli in her. But for some strange reason, she didn't like that. Anyway, so what we did was we came up with a cunning plan. We put pureed broccoli in the back half of the spoon, but in the front half of the spoon, we would cover it with pity for Lou, strawberry flavors. So she would, she would get this pity for Lou, and she would, oh, pity for Lou. And she'd go, and then she'd go, oh, broccoli. But there was enough pity for Lou in it to keep it going. And then as she was kind of twigging on, we were doing this, then she would kind of be reluctant. So what we do is we give her a whole spoon of pity for Lou to disorientate her. And she'd think, all right, everything's fine again. And then we'd load up the broccoli again. <laughs> See, the techniques. Satan uh, operates in this way. <laughs> and I'll do the parenting talk in a few weeks' time. He operates with half-truths. You see, I don't know if you've noticed this. You, you don't sin, I understand. You wouldn't have noticed this. But sin is fun, I have to say. I'm not proud of it, but it is fun. And that's why we do it. If it hurt immediately, we wouldn't do it. It hurts long term. And most of all, it hurts God. But sin is candy-coated. And Satan comes with the most dangerous things into our lives and he candy-coats them. Joe Thessaman, the American football commentator, talking to his second ex-wife, telling her the reasons why he had just committed adultery against her. His reasoning was this. Well, God wants Joe Thessaman to be happy. You see, there's a half-truth there. God does want Joe Thessaman to have joy. But God does not want Joe Thessaman to be unfaithful. We understand that many people buy into lies. And they don't come as overt lies. They come as half-truths. 
So there's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for your well-being. There's a battle for your mental health. Some of you have got a battle on for the mental health and you're believing half-truths. And that's why you're struggling in the battle. For example, you might be believing they don't deserve to be forgiven. So therefore you hold on to bitterness. And you know what? That's a half-truth. They probably don't deserve to be forgiven. But the truth is, neither do we. Yet God forgives us in Christ. And it's called grace. So God requires us and calls us to forgive even though they haven't even asked for it. And therefore we become free and we don't hold bitterness. But instead we believe that for half-truth, they don't deserve to be forgiven. We hold on to our bitterness and it affects our mental health because we believe the half-truth. Or you've got a married couple and it's not going so well. So the guy's thinking, I really fancy a bit of her instead. Or you're seeing people and you're seeing relationships and you think, I want that instead. And the lie in your head is the grass is greener on the other side. And it's a lie. The grass is greener where the grass is watered. The grass isn't greener on the other side. Now, sure enough, you might go off and you might have a bit of excitement. And initially, there's an excitement, there's an adventure, and there's a riskiness to it. But I guarantee you, there's a sting in his tail. There's a sourness that comes. There's a bitterness. There's a deep regret. There's a regret that you will grow old with that cannot be reversed. Don't believe the lie. The lies come as half-truths. There's a battle for your soul. Many people are believing some lies about their soul. They think, well... I'm not that bad, really. I can't, I can't, I'm not really a sinner. I don't sin that bad. God loves me. He would forgive. He loves me that much. He wouldn't send anyone to hell, would he? So we're believing half-truths that God does love. Yes, he does. But the Bible's truth is a hard truth. And it's the truth is that we are sinners. And unless we get right with God, we are heading to a lost eternity. There's a battle on. And the battle is a battle for truth. And God wants us to walk in truth, live in truth. And stand in truth. The next thing God wants us to do is he wants us to stand in righteousness. It says in verse 14, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. You see, this scheme of Satan here that we are counteracting is Satan's scheme called accusation. It's described as we read earlier in Revelation 12 verse 10, where Satan there is described as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night. Satan is the accuser. And our defense against that is we have a breastplate of righteousness. You see, accusations come your way a hundred times a minute every day. How many of you experience on a regular basis condemnation thoughts, accusation thoughts, uh, things that put you down, tell you who you're not, tell you who you'll never be, tell you what you've done and remind you about your mistakes and wind you up about stuff? How many people get that? Right, you all get it. And it comes a hundred times a day. And sometimes it comes relentlessly. Now I have to say some of that comes from your own psyche. But I have to also say that a lot of it comes from Satan. This will affect more serious minded of you. You know, people who are serious minded and who take really seriously the condition of the soul. That's, that's a good thing. But you, you've got to be careful you don't become susceptible to beating yourself up and taking on accusation. And Satan is the accuser. And our defense is righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean? Well, the Bible uses this phrase righteousness in two ways. It talks about righteousness as in you're living a morally good life. But it also talks about righteousness as imputed righteousness. What does that mean? It means it's been given to you. It's been attributed to you. You become it. 
And this is what Jesus did for you on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. And yet on the cross, he became our sin. Why? Well, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. So a divine exchange took place on the cross. When Jesus took your sin, he became your sin and died in your place, paying the price for the sin that you should have paid the price for. And in exchange, he offers us his righteousness. That's amazing. Now you don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But that's what we get when we put our faith in Jesus. It says in another place in Romans 4, 5, listen to this. This is a mind-blowing. To the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, you're not the person who's, you're not trying to earn God's favor and God's acceptance by being such a good boy or girl. You're trusting God because you know you can never be good enough. And by putting your faith in Jesus, you're made righteous. God who justifies the wicked. I'm wicked. By trusting Jesus who is righteous. And his righteousness becomes my righteousness. That's what the Bible says. You are not saved by how good you are. You are saved by how good he is. And by your faith in him. We're a pretty young congregation. So we have a lot of weddings. Every year we get more and more people getting married. Which is dead exciting. And we have very few funerals. Which I'm pleased about. But we do have a few funerals. And when I have an opportunity to do a funeral, it's an important moment. And you know, one thing I want to be able to do in a funeral is I want to be able to stand up in front of the people at the funeral and say, don't worry, this person's in heaven. Who am I to judge that? Ultimately, God only knows. But I can get a pretty good indication. And here's what I do. For me, how moral that person was is no indication of whether or not they're in heaven. In other words, I don't go digging and say, were they living morally right lives before they died? Did they, were they dabbling with stuff they shouldn't have dabbled with? Were they ticking all the boxes as far as God was concerned? And you know, on different scales, you may die looking like you're living a morally excellent life, although behind the scenes you're struggling with things. You may die looking to others like you're messed up big style and you're a real mess. But listen, that's not what I ask. I don't ask how morally upright they were or appeared to be before they died. I ask this. I ask, did they have an authentic faith, a current authentic faith in God? Because if they have a current authentic faith in God, then God justifies the wicked. And I tell you this, if you have a current authentic faith in God, then you're not going to want to go sin and not, you're not going to want to go offend God who you love deeply. That's the issue. And if there's a th- current authentic faith in God, then do you know what? They may have died a mess. But I will stand up in that funeral and say, this person had an authentic faith in God. And the Bible says, God gives them a gift called righteousness and they're in heaven today. That's amazing. And this breastplate of righteousness defends you against accusation. It defends you against accusation. William Shakespeare in 1616, a month before he died, wrote as the conclusion to his will. He said this, I commend my soul into the hands of God my creator, 
hoping and assuredly believing through only the merits of Jesus Christ, my Savior, to be partaker of life everlasting. William Shakespeare was saying, do you know what? Only through what Jesus has done am I going to get into heaven. Not through how good I am. Wow. The next thing Paul goes on to say is he talks about advancing with the gospel. Verse 15. He says, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You see, up till now, we've talked about armor that will defend us against Satan's attack. But here now, the bit of weaponry or the bit of equipment that he's talking about is something that's not for our benefit, but rather for the benefit of helping others overcome. And this is important. And the scheme of Satan that we are counteracting here with this particular bit of weaponry is his thiefness. It says in John 10.10, Jesus speaking about Satan, he says, Jesus said, the thief, talking about Satan, comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Satan is the one taking, ruining, stealing, killing and destroying. He wants to undermine your life. If things are being taken from you, your health has been stolen, your peace has been stolen, then it's not God. I believe it's the devil. I believe, in contrast, Jesus is the one who gives life in abundance. So we're in a city, and all around us in our city, we see Satan at work. If this worldview is indeed true, then all around us today, there are people whose lives have been stolen, killed, and destroyed. People's peace have been stolen away. People's legacies have been stolen away. People's lives are being eroded and undermined by the activity of these demonic forces or Satan himself. And it ruins, and it's horrendous. We see there's a battle on. This, Satan's trying to steal from your family. Satan's trying to steal from your community. Satan's trying to steal your peace. Satan's trying to steal from your, from your city and from your nation. So what do we do? Well, in love, we say, I'm not just going to defend myself with my equipment, but I'm going to put on these shoes that is the readiness to get out there and share a message with the city, with my family, with my community, with my friends. Because I'm not accepting this claw will just steal things away. I believe, Jesus, you came to give life in abundance. Therefore, I'm going to go wage some warfare. I'm going to share my faith. You see, I believe one of the best ways you can change the city is pray and share the gospel. Remember when I came to Edinburgh at first, some ministers said, you know, in 1998 when we started the church, I had many ministers say, oh, churches don't grow here. It's a hard place. And I remember... It was like red rag to bullet. I felt it riled me. I remember one uh, minister saying, well, what you've got to do is you've got to spiritually map the city and you've got to do warfare and then your church might grow. I didn't even know what he was talking about. Don't worry, you don't need to either. And I said, well, I believe in this thing called the gospel. I don't know if you've heard about it, but I'm going to share that in the city. Because one of the best ways you can defeat that thief in the city because the thief only has power because the people are believing lies. So what you do is you counteract the lies and you share truth. You bring hope in the hopeless situations. You tell them about a God who came and died on the cross so they could be forgiven and have a new life. You share that gospel and that brings life. That brings freedom. That brings salvation. Notice it says the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In other words, you're like that. You're in your starting box. You're looking for opportunities. Is that you? Or are you kind of, all right, as long as I'm defended, that's all right. 
No, we've got to have a heart for the city. We've got to say, no, no more. There are too many people around us being stolen, killed, and destroyed. So we're out there, we're ready. Ready with a message. With a message that gives, and some of you are up for that. Some of you are confident in that. Some of you feel utterly intimidated at the prospect of sharing your faith with someone else. You try and avoid the subjects. But I want to encourage you, change your minds. Be someone who's passionate about sharing truth with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, with your community, with your city. Because God loves this city and through our feeble attempts at sharing the most amazing message ever, God uses those feeble attempts like seeds sown in the soil and he waters them and God alone can cause great things to happen. That's exactly what took place in many of your lives. Say wow. I just did that so I could get a drink while you're... Then Bible says stand in faith. Verse 16. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is where we counteract Satan's scheme of intimidation. 1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan in this way. It says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking, looking for someone to devour. Satan wants to intimidate. Satan wants to throw things at you, to take you out. The Bible describes him as flaming arrows. Notice an arrow would cause damage. The initial penetration would cause a wounds. But a flaming arrow has a double damage in that once the penetration has been made, then the flame spreads and causes widespread and longer lasting damage. The Bible here says that our defense against Satan's attacks is our faith. The word shield here isn't describing a little round shield that you would have in a, in a kind of combat sword to sword combat where you've got someone fighting with a sword, a little shield. It's not describing that. The word here that Paul uses is the word used to describe the big shields that the Romans would have. And the shields that they would all put in a barricade, it would almost form like a wall behind which they would hide. And our, our defense against Satan's attacks is our faith. So Satan will throw many fiery arrows in your direction. He will inflict sickness. He will cause undermining circumstances to come into your lives. I'm not saying that every sickness, and I'm not saying that every negative circumstance, and I'm not saying that every negative person is from the devil. All right? When your boss tells you, gives you into trouble, you don't say, Shut up, devil, right? It might just be you being a nerd and you needed to hear a telling off, okay? So don't be so super spiritual about it. But I am saying that there are occasions and you need to discern that there are many times in life where actually what is going on is wrong and irrational. And there is manipulative authorities that work against you in those circumstances. And it might be an economic circumstance where your money is being frittered away and there's an attack against you. Or it might be in your health, or it might be in your family, or it might be in your marriage, it might be with your kids. It might be in your mind, it might be in your soul. But these attacks come like arrows, accusations and temptations and, and people coming at you, all sorts of things happening. And these attacks are coming and our defense is faith. I remember hearing one story of one Roman soldier called Cassius. And after one particular battle, his shields had been penetrated by a hundred arrows. He survived the battle. One of the arrows went through the shield and poked one of his eyes out. He had another arrow went in his shoulder and he had another bit of damage in his left leg. But he did survive the battle. Glad he kept his shield up, huh? He'd have been like a sieve if he hadn't. But I want to say that you may have a hundred arrows coming at you. And there might be occasions where you get a few scars. You might not always get it right. There might be times where things don't work out as you hoped. And you think, God, I, don't, I can't figure why that didn't work out. God, I prayed. I don't know why that didn't. Listen, move on. You're alive. 
Keep your faith. Don't budge from your faith. Keep the shield up. Keep standing. I have to tell you, there is no demilitarized zone. All right? There's no kind of, all right, time out, devil. Right, time out. No, the devil doesn't do that. You, like, see, when you book your holiday to Corfu, I have to tell you, the devil will go with you. Okay? It's not like, all right, no more battle. I'm going on holiday now. I have to tell you, the fiery arrows will come on holiday. Don't, take, don't kind of leave your faith in Scotland. Take it in hand luggage. I'm telling you, you need to be, I don't mean you're paranoid in life, but you are nevertheless vigilant. You understand that life is struggle and you need to stand and you stand in faith and that extinguishes the fiery arrows of Satan. Don't let your guard come down and keep walking with God. Keep believing, keep trusting. 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Then stand assured, verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation I believe that salvation, this is talking about your assurance of your salvation. You know that you're going to heaven. And you know, if Satan can get you off that assurance, then he can utterly ruin your life. Some people are walking around and Satan has has, has challenged your conviction. And you think, "Did, did God really save me? Does God really accept me? Will I really make it to heaven? God surely doesn't accept me. And helmet of salvation is your assurance. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the helmet, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It describes the helmet in Thessalonians as the hope of salvation. It is your assurance that one day I'm going to heaven. And your defense by keeping that helmet on is an assurance that you're safe. But Satan wants to rock your assurance. Satan wants to make you doubt whether or not you're going to make it. Satan wants to make you doubt whether or not God heard your prayer and whether or not you're heading to heaven. When you know you're heading to heaven, it changes your entire perspective in life. It gives you a sense of ultimate security and peace. Everything else pales into insignificance. Satan also, if it was possible, would want you to take that helmet off. If it was possible. In Matthew 24, 12 to 13, Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm till the ends will be saved. Keep that helmet on. Matthew 10, 22, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm till the ends will be saved. See, the Roman helmet was heavy. It was a heavy helmet. So much so that inside they had to have padding and and felt lined padding on the inside so that the weight of it wouldn't make it incredibly uncomfortable in the skull. The helmet was heavy. And there are moments where, because of the cynic, many people are becoming cynical because of the way the world is going, and people say, oh, well, stuff God. You keep that helmet on. The weight of things may become a, a lot, but you keep it on. There might come a challenge. See, becoming a believer, you might get flagged from it. Maybe your family, I was chatting to a dear girl earlier in the, in the Leith service, She comes from an Orthodox Jewish family. When she was 21, she became a believer in Jesus. Her family don't want anything to do with her. That's a heavy load. That might might be an alien concept for some of you, but for many, it's a reality. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Keep your assurance of salvation. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge in America, during the early stages of the construction work, 23 men fell off the construction of the the bridge and fell to their deaths. 
You'd have thought after the first one fell off, they would have done something about health and safety, but 23 days, 23 deaths later, they decided it might be a good idea to put a safety net underneath. So they put in a safety net for the second half of the construction process. In the second half of the construction process, only 10 people fell off. None of them died because they were safe by landing in the net. Furthermore, productivity went up by 25%. It's interesting. Knowing that they were ultimately going to be safe, even if they fell off the bridge, enabled them to be safer and to be more productive. And you know, if Satan can get you away from an assurance that you are saved, then he will undermine your ability to pray. You know, if, you're, if one minute you're thinking, God, does God accept me? You're not going to go, then go and pray some passionate prayers for other people in the next moment, are you? You're going to be utterly undermined. You're not going to feel confident. God wants you to know assurance. And when you know assurance, then from that will come a confidence to step out, be productive and live the life God called you to live. And then it says, stand in the word, verse 17. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Earlier we said that we should put on the belt of truth. And that our tr- the truth should be what gives us our ability to stand. The question is truth. Well, what is the basis for our truth? In our postmodern worlds, some say, well, you believe what you believe and that's true for you. And I believe what I believe and that's true for me. But as Christians, we have a basis for our truth. The basis for our truth is the word of God, the Bible. Over and under through the door, the door, the doorway to another world, a world so forwards and backwards and the words, the words were pouring, pouring from his throat, his hand, he stretched out his hand, his hand was reaching slowly, grasping my brain, all over me fell silent rain. Rain keeps falling, darkness calling, world keeps turning, sorrow burning, fighting, biting, dark moonlighting, in a shouting, silent trance, melancholy, feelings dance, yet dense, how dense grows thicker still, the claws are sharpened for the kill, and all I want is thoughts to still, to stop, the sword, the sword, pick up the sword. Don't stand and tremble. Use the word. The word made flesh. The word on high. The word divided land and sky. The word convicts. The word brings light. The word gives me the strength to fight. And as I stand, I stand in light. I stand uncovered, shining bright. I fight, I fight, I fight, I fight. Because authority has rescued me. Authority has set me free. Authority in you, not me. And I'll fight the good fight. And I'll fight to stay free. Eat words that run astray. Walk out of night today. Such wisdom from the deepest source. Such power causing such remorse. Such knowledge we will never know. Yet gentle as the softest snow. Such peace so kind and calm and still. Such longing for my heart to fill, such battle for the truth made known, such light to guide the captives home, such love, I know I'm not alone, such love. When Satan came to Eve, 
in the garden in Genesis 3, Satan's question in Genesis 3 was, did God really say? Instead of fighting back, Eve said, she went along with the questioning. She should have said, no, God did say. In contrast, Jesus, when tempted in the wilderness, when Satan misquoted scripture at Jesus and brought into question the very word of God, Jesus replied, it is written, it is written, it is written. The word of God is like a sword. It is your ground-taking device. It is your counter-attack. It is your defense. Our truth isn't just, well, I think I like the idea of this, so I'm going to hold to that truth. That's convenient truth. Sometimes our truth is tough truth. I believe stuff in the Bible that, doesn't, that emotionally is tough. But what I have found is that by building your life according to what the Bible says, I have found, and I promise you, you build your life on the principles of the Bible. You build your marriage on the principles of the Bible. You build your future on the principles of the Bible. It builds for a successful, fruitful, God-blessed life. It works. The sword works. It's strong. It's accurate. And our basis for believing as believers is that truth is based on God's word. And then finally, Paul says, stand in prayer. Verse 18 says this, verse 18 to 20. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert always. Keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, Words may be given to me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So how do you stand in prayer? How? Well, Paul says, pray in the spirit. Now that does include praying in tongues, but it means a lot more than just praying in tongues. Last summer when we were on holiday in Austria, middle of the night one night, I woke up thinking about one of you, praying for one of you, because I was deeply concerned from God about your life. Next day, I sent a text saying, just to let you know, I was praying for you. Chat to my friend when I got back, and he was saying that he was going through a particularly tough patch. But right in that moment, hundreds of miles away, God stirred someone to pray. I believe as believers, our prayers shape things. Our prayers change cities. Our prayers change environments. Our prayers change situations. And we must be not just random or visual in our praying, but we must be Holy Spirit sensitive in our praying. So even when things seem fine, we're able to see beyond that and hear the voice of God and know the leading of God. Paul says, how should we pray? Pray in the Spirit. When should we pray? Paul says, pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be a person who's continually praying and bringing things before God. For whom should we pray? Well, Paul says, pray for all the saints. I want to encourage you to take time. Pray for this church. Pray for the people in this church. Pray for other believers that you know. Beyond that, he says, pray also for me, Paul said. In other words, pray for your leaders. Pray for the leaders in the church. Pray for those who are kind of heading things up and leading things forward. The principle Satan knows is you strike the shepherd, you take out the sheep. So you pray protection on God's leaders. And then who else? We should pray for the unchurched. Paul said, please pray for me that I will make known the mystery of the gospel. So pray for our initiatives and endeavors. We've got awesome plan of activities and initiatives planned for the whole year that will, I believe, deeply impact our city and touch hundreds and hundreds of people in a positive way. We've got great initiatives, great events, 
great uh, big and small events planned for throughout the whole year. Every month there's going to be things happening by which we can communicate to the unchurched population of our city. Pray for every one of those. Do it, let's, let's behind the scenes be praying and upholding these things before God, asking that God will make them effective. You need to know that prayer has a mighty, is a mighty power and a mighty tool that God has given you as, a, as an ability to operate in authority to bring God's kingdom to bear in people's lives. I remember as a student uh, in Glasgow, I, that evening I was going to the student home group in the, in the church in the city. And uh, I, as I was going there, I met a homeless guy. And I said, oh, do you want to come along with me? And the guy said, I'm, I'm drunk, man. I said, don't worry, all the other students are drunk, come along. <laughs> so I brought him along to the, just kidding, not in our church, I think. So I brought this guy along and he, he was in a lot of pain. He had a slip disc and he was kind of, kind of hobbling like this. He was really suffering. And he kind of suffered his way through this home group. I guess it was a warm place to be and he got food, so he appreciated that. At the end of the home group, me and Tim Brown, uh, who now leads Destiny Church in Newcastle, we offered can we pray for you for your back? Because he told us he'd slipped one of his discs. I said, oh, I'd really appreciate that. And he was, he was like this, absolutely in agony. So we prayed for him. And after praying, he opened his eyes and he stood up and his eyes were like saucers. He said, the pain's gone, he said. He said, the pain's gone. He was absolutely blown away. It was, it was awesome. I, lo- I love seeing that in people when there's an instant miracle. And you can see, wow, the pain's gone. He was totally, I can't. He said, the pain's gone. And I said, I believe you, I believe you. Don't worry, I believe you. <laughs> he, he, he was just utterly blown away. I guess he thought, all right, pray a random prayer and we'll get it over with and I'll need to go. You know, but he wasn't expecting to get a miracle, but he got miraculously healed. Anyway, this particular guy, I met him several times and I brought him to church the following Sunday and he was constantly tormented with voices in his head. I mean, horrendous voices, dark voices. Uh, very tormented. A dear individual. He was in and out of mental institutions. Now, I'm not saying that all mental problems are in any way linked to demons. It's, that's a dangerous thing to say, although cer- some of them certainly are. And in this situation, it was. And he came along uh, to one of our Sunday services, and Andrew, the pastor through in Glasgow, prayed over him. And I, I, I was there as he prayed for him. And he didn't ask, what's wrong with you? How can I pray for you? He just asked God's blessing on him. But I knew what was wrong with him because I knew the guy, and I knew that he had these voices in his head. And as Andrew prayed over him, he prayed that God would free him from all the negative influences that had been at work in his life. And anyway, I saw him several times for several months after that on the streets, still struggling with different addictions and all sorts. But he said to me, Peter, you know, since I came to the church, since I visited that Sunday, I've never had a voice since then in my head. You have to understand that prayer is one of our key ways of exercising authority as believers, that we can see the miraculous that we can see people being freed. God delights in setting people free. God wants us to be equipped to stand. We're in a spiritual world. A lot of bad stuff going down. The Bible's take on our world is this, that we're in a struggle. And the struggle isn't just survival. The struggle isn't secular. The struggle isn't the economy, your spouse, your environment. But indeed, behind the struggle, Satan is at work. Demons are at work. There's manipulation going on. And our advice from the Bible to us is this. Learn to stand. Stand with equipment that relate to truth. Stand with belt of truth. Stand with understanding of assurance of salvation. Stand knowing you're righteous even when the accusations comes. Stand in faith. Stand with the readiness to go out and share the good news to set other people free. Stand with an ability to pray 
and see God move on your behalf. Stands. Some of you tonight maybe are away from God. Maybe you once walked with God but no longer do. Or maybe you've never decided to follow Jesus. Your choice. But I want to encourage you. I want to see you in a place where you have a a solid standing in life, spiritually speaking. You're in a dangerous world. There are lots of things that are out to get you. And I believe in God you're eternally, spiritually, and ultimately safe. So come to him tonight. I urge you. Or at least go away and seriously consider coming to him. But maybe tonight, you've got to make the decision tonight and say, I'm going to come to God. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. In a moment as we pray, I'll give you the opportunity to do that. Why not make the biggest and best decision you can make tonight and yield your life to him? Father God, we want to thank you tonight. When we come to you, we move from into the winning team. We come to a place of spiritual safety in Christ. God, we realize we're in a world that's a battle. In this world, you are for us and the devil is against us. God, I pray that we will be people who are alert, spiritual, and equipped to be able to stand in you, stand in your strength, stand in your truth, stand in your righteousness, stand knowing we're saved, stand in prayer. God, I pray that as a church, collectively we would stand and that we would see people in our city set free, that people who are suffering and struggling with all sorts of oppressions, that they would find this to be a place of deliverance. God, I pray for people in this church, God, that for anyone here tonight, God, as, they've, as we've gathered, who are struggling, who are being tormented, and I pray, God, they would come to you tonight and they'd find you to be their deliverer and their strength, and they would find in you an ability to stand in the middle of the struggles of life. I pray for those, God, who are feeling like the, uh, those fiery arrows are coming at them uh, ten to a dozen. God, I pray as as they're feeling that onslaught, I pray they would never be tempted just to quit because there is no demilitarized zone. I pray they would persevere and stand in faith that they wouldn't quit on you because you'll never quit on them. That they will stand and they will see you come through for them as their deliverer. God, I pray for anyone here tonight, God, who is far from you. God, I pray that those who are far from you tonight would in their own hearts reach out in faith put their trust in Jesus who died for them and rose again and they would find you to be their saviour I pray tonight that people will make a decision to follow Jesus and put their trust in you while we're all praying if that's you tonight and you're saying Peter I need to get my life right with God I want to put my faith in Jesus I want to make a commitment to being his follower from this day forward if that's you then I invite you just now to pray this prayer with me, just quietly under your breath. Repeat this after me. Let this be your prayer of commitment to him. Pray with me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you that your love motivated you to come into this world. Jesus, I believe you died for me in the cross. You took my sin, my shame, You died in my place on the cross so that I could be forgiven. And I believe you rose again on the third day. I believe you're alive right now. 
I believe that you are the Lord. Today I ask you for your forgiveness for all my sin, past, present, and future. I pray you'd wipe the slate clear. Give me a new start. Thank you. Jesus, I believe that you're alive and today I make a commitment to being your follower. I declare you to be the Lord of my life now. Help me to follow you from this day forward. Thanks for hearing my prayer, God, and for accepting me as your child. Amen. Keep your eyes closed for a moment. Keep praying. If anyone here tonight prayed that prayer, I believe that God heard you, and I believe that God accepts you. I would love the privilege of praying for you. If you're here tonight and you prayed that prayer, you made that commitment, I'd love to pray God's blessing on you and ask God just to bless you as you embark on this new life with him. Just while everyone else's eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer, can you just identify yourself to me very quickly by raising your hands? And then in a moment, I'll pray for those who put their hands up. Just for a moment, just quickly put your hand up if you prayed that prayer. Thanks. Is anyone else? Before I pray, is there anyone else? Thank you. anyone else thank you anyone else you made that commitment tonight before I pray is there anyone else just put your hand up dear God thank you so much for these precious individuals tonight who tonight have made a decision and you've heard their prayer you've heard their prayer and you accept them I pray, God, they would know right now your Holy Spirit, the power of your Spirit, filling their lives, filling their heart with joy inexpressible and love. Let them know the total acceptance of God in this moment. Come, Spirit of God, fill them. I pray, God, you'd protect them, prepare them for the future. I pray you'd help them to live the life you've called them to live. Help them to plug into the church so they can grow in their faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship God to end. My friends who put their hands up, uh, before you leave, I'm going to ask one of my prayer partners, if you don't mind, just to come and say hi to you and to uh, give you a pamphlet uh, which explains what it means to be a Christian. And they'll offer to pray for you again if you would like that. Uh, Let's worship.